there are a few seats that seem to be not yet taken, so there's one, no, no, there is no longer one there. There might be a, three or four empty seats there in the middle, so do fill in one over there. Don't be shy, and then I guess we will have a full house. This is quite a large group, and it's an indication that this is a conversation, even if we really have more questions and answers at this point that uh, needs to happen. Uh, be my name is Andrew Gordon. I'm the acting director of the Harvard Asia Center. And on behalf of my fellow directors of all the other centers and units that are sponsoring this event, I want to welcome you here today. Right after the election, in a kind of days of, of astonishment and, I admit, uh, despondence, I realized that we needed to have a discussion like this, and I talked to my, the staff at the Asia Center, Holly Angel, who I thank very much for working to pull this together, and simultaneously Michael Sony and James Evans on the staff of the Fairbank Center had the same idea. It took us about two days to realize we were planning similar events, and we decided to merge forces and then reached out to other programs. Sunju Kim gave me suggestions for speakers uh, focused on Korea. Um, I was in contact with Bill Alfred at the law school. Susan Farr, who's moderating, and Shin Fujihira of the, of the US-Japan Relations Program staff also helped out with suggested um, speakers and contacting people. And we very quickly assembled this really fine and distinguished panel. Uh, today's panel will be audio recorded with a podcast link on the various centers' websites, and we'll post a written summary on the Asia Center website. Uh, I also want to give a particular thanks to James Evans of the Fairbank Center for the extraordinary poster that he created um, with uh, the facing face of, of the president-elect as well as the western half of the continent of the North America uh, looking across to Asia. We do anticipate this will be the first of several discussions of this character in the future probably focused more specifically and narrowly on one or another country in relation to the United States in the Trump era and so we, uh, as the poster says, this is the first of a series. I'm going to quickly turn things over to Susan Farr as the moderator, but I want to finally just mention <coughs> the groups, the centers that are co-sponsoring this event with us. The Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies, the Raishar Institute of Japanese Studies, the Kim Ku Forum at the Korea Institute, the South Asia Institute, the Program on U.S.-Japan Relations, East Asian Legal Studies, the Harvard Law School, the Belfer program and the, also the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at the Harvard Kennedy School. So thanks to all. Thanks to all of you for being here. And over to you, Susan. Thank you. <laughs> Let me just ask anyone in, who is seated and has next to them an empty seat, would you raise your hand? Because it's hard to tell from the back. Are there any empty seats? Answer. There are no empty one There's empty one seat. Okay. <clears throat> well, as of tomorrow, a month will have passed since the November 8th election. Tuesday, it's hard to believe, only a month ago. When it comes to foreign policy and it comes to Asia, certainly much is still not known. The, the pivotal appointment of a Secretary of State 
is uh, really mired in uh, really a lot of controversy. A number of new names have come into the pot, although some of the old names, such as Mitt Romney uh, is, uh, the, and Giuliani, are still said to be in the mix. New names have come in. John Huntsman, a former ambassador to China. John Bolton, former ambassador to the UN, and so on. But still not known, but perhaps later this week we will know. But Asia has certainly been there in this first month. Prime Minister Abe was the first head of state from Asia to have a face-to-face -face meeting uh, with uh, the president-elect. And for the first time, and anyone can remember, an actual family member, Ivana, Ivanka Trump, <coughs> sat in on that meeting. Um, a few days uh, ago, pre the president-elect took a phone call from Taiwan's president, breaking practice in place for 40 years uh, in the One China policy which, in which heads of state, the U.S. president has not had direct contact with Taiwan's president. His recent moves to save a jobs of a factory plant in Indiana involve a possible move of those jobs to Mexico, and yet the implications for how President-elect uh, and President Trump will deal with uh, with companies and generally with business interests in the U.S. economy in the area of trade. Uh, it, we see some inklings of that in this individualized style, reaching out to a particular company and uh, threatening, in a tweet, uh, tariffs <clears throat> to be imposed on goods if that company moves offshore and then sends its products back into the U.S. market, a 35 percent tariff being discussed. We also, uh, one could say that the, the question in people's minds about whether there would be a petition between the business interests of the president and his family and, uh, and his duties as president, and basically it's becoming clear it's going to be very permeated, that that line will not be uh, held firmly. And we have uh, in, uh, quite recently in uh, Japan, Ivanka Trump uh, rolling out her apparel <clears throat> company in a tie-in with uh, the Japan Development Bank, which is a part of the Japanese government. So there are a lot of things going on that uh, involve Asia directly or indirectly. Uh, also, it's notable that the first president-elect uh, has declined daily intelligence briefings, uh, which is... Uh, really uh, quite uh, startling. So there are many firsts and many things to ponder. And we have really a very distinguished uh, panel to try to make sense of some of the things that have been happening and put them in perspective. <clears throat> I'll keep these bios <clears throat> quite brief to allow maximum time for a discussion. Our first presenter will be Joseph Nye, University Distinguished Professor and former Dean of Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Uh, he is... Uh, uh, the author of many, many books, including books dealing with uh, uh, soft power, the power to lead, the future of power, presidential leadership. He's also been very important in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, he served uh, in government in the Clinton administration, and more recently, he served on the advisory committee for John Kerry uh, in advising on U.S. foreign policy. <clears throat> Ezra Vogel is the Henry Ford II Professor of Social Scientists Emeritus at Harvard. He uh, became a lecturer at Harvard in 1964 and has been, in, been 
here since then and is distinguished by the fact that he works both on uh, uh, Japan and China and has been uh, prolific in his publications, including uh, books uh, that have been bestsellers both in Japan and China. Japan is number one as the bestseller in Japan and Deng Xiaoping and the transformation of China several years ago, a bestseller in China. Mm -hmm. He, too, served in government during the Clinton administration, and in fact, when Joseph Nye was uh, in <clears throat> government uh, on the National Intelligence Council, uh, he worked as the coordinator for intelligence on uh, Asia. Our third presenter is Lynn Kwok, who is a visiting fellow in the Harvard Law School. She's a also a non-resident resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. She's a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on International Security. Uh, she has uh, a degree in comparative politics from the University of Cambridge and a law degree from Sing National University of Singapore. Her research interests include nationalism and race and religious relations in Southeast Asia uh, and the politics, law, and security of the Asia Pacific. Soon Yong Lee, a fourth presenter, is the Kim Koo Korea Foundation pro uh, Professor of Korean Studies uh, at the Fletcher School. He's also an associate in research at the Korea Institute. He's been a frequent contributor and commentator in the mass media on issues relating to North Korea and South Korea, and he certainly testified as an expert witness before the House of Representatives on Foreign Affairs on North Korea policy. I turn things over to Joseph Nye. <clears throat> Thank you, uh, Susan. You've given me a uh, nice task of seven minutes to explain Donald Trump and Asia. So <laughs> I have one person to explain on this end and what, about two and a half billion at the other end? It's a lot easier at the other end. We always talk about the inscrutability of the Asians compared to the inscrutability of Donald Trump. It's easy. Uh, that's a way of warning you that don't believe a word I'm about to say because I have been consistently wrong about Donald Trump. I assured my wife he wouldn't get the Republican nomination, and I assured her he wouldn't be assured her he wouldn't become president. Um, two and a half million people agreed with me in terms of of the uh, popular vote, but uh, nonetheless he, he's going to be president. Uh, so what will be Donald Trump's approach to Asia? And the answer is we really do not know. If you look at his, if you look at his statements in the campaign, uh, they are mutually contradictory. And then if some of his actions since the campaign, uh, he has taken some things back and not others. So, so we don't know. And I was at a meeting at the, at, uh, in Washington uh, last Friday of a group of uh, people that included John Huntsman, among others, that were trying to uh, answer the, the same question. And I thought one of the best pieces of wisdom came from uh, uh, Bob Zellick, former president of the World Bank, in which he said, take Trump at his word. He was totally unpredictable in the way he campaigned. He's been totally unpredictable in the way he's been a president-elect. Why don't you think he will be unpredictable as a leader of foreign policy as president? So I think our Taiwan phone call was just a first uh, indication of that. Um, if you look at what Trump said during the campaign, 
he really had a quite radical <clears throat> position. American foreign policy since 1945 has been based on a series of alliances around the world and institutions. And while we've had deep divisions in American foreign policy over the last 70 years, they've been about intervention in less developed countries, Vietnam, Iraq, and so forth. But the basic structure of the alliances that's sometimes called the liberal international order has not been questioned. Trump questioned it in the, in the campaign. He said if allies didn't do more in terms of defending themselves, we might have to let them take care of themselves, even to the point that he said that Korea and Japan might have to get nuclear weapons if they get, weren't going to pay what they needed. Uh, that was really quite radical. Uh, now, is he going to do that? I think not. I mean, on that one, I'll take a bet, which is that uh, tearing up that fundamental framework, I think, is unlikely. And uh, I thought that the, uh, the meeting with Prime Minister Abe was an indication of that. Abe was smart to get in there quickly, to get in there in an informal way. Uh, but if I look at uh, the situation of the U.S. alliance with Japan, I would say it's probably going to be okay. Um, and it's partly because of the fact that it makes so much sense in terms of an overall strategy. It's partly also because Japan provides very generous host nation support. So Trump's complaint about allies not doing enough, there are many cases where it's actually cheaper to keep uh, soldiers or Marines in uh, Japan than to home base them in the U.S. So I doubt that the alliance is going to be shattered, even though Trump said some things that were quite uh, remarkable during the campaign. Uh, TPP is a different matter. The, on the trade side, I think TPP is gone. But, but on the alliance, I think the U.S.-Japan relationship uh, is going to remain strong. And I think the Abe visit was an indication of that. The other thing, though, that we don't know is what's he really going to do about China? And there we have these various statements in the campaign about uh, uh, day one, I'm going to declare them a currency manipulator, uh, if not at 45% tariff, and, and so forth, uh, which is very tough talk. Uh, it would be extraordinarily expensive if he were to do this, expensive for the U.S., not just for China. But uh, will that deter him or not? Um, when Ezra and I were working together in the Clinton administration, uh, we basically uh, did a scenario, which Ezra worked out, of different futures for China and about uh, how we could guide a policy toward China. And we came to the conclusion that we did not want to contain China, as some people were urging, but we did want to shape the environment that gave China incentives to be what Bob Zellick later called a responsible stakeholder. And in that sense, uh, I think that policy worked. It led to our inviting China into the World Trade Organization, accepting Chinese trade, uh, and it uh, was followed by the Bush 43 administration. So the policy of bringing China in uh, was accepted, and our insurance policy that went along with that 
was to reaffirm the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. In case China did become a bully, uh, we would have something to fall back on. But we regarded these as two consistent parts of a single policy. If Trump just does the U.S.-Japan Treaty and doesn't continue to integrate China, then you really have a radical departure in our policy toward China. But again, we don't know that. Uh, when the Obama administration came into office, their attitude toward China was somewhat uh, optimistic. They, Obama thought he could get China to deal with him on transnational issues. After the first year, there was a bit of disillusion, and uh, things became a bit rougher in 2010, 11, and so forth. But nonetheless, I think the underlying premise that we used, which was that China is not a revisionist power trying to overthrow the international system, but wants to make changes within it that affect China's interests, but not overthrow it, I think that still stands. There's a very interesting article by Wang Jisui in the latest issue of the, of the journal that his Beidop uh, points out, uh, saying China, and he quotes, uh, you know, uh, Wang Yi and various, uh, Xi Jinping, that China really doesn't want to kick over the system, that China gets a lot out of the system. They just want to adjust things within it more to their interests. And if you think of it that way, uh, you could argue that Obama, while he got off to a slightly rough start with China, did eventually do relatively well. Jim Fallows has an article in the latest Atlantic which echoes Orville Schell's concern about has China gone the wrong direction, stepping backwards. This may be true in terms of our hopes for liberal values in China and human rights. But when it comes to China being part of the international system, uh, think of the following. Four years ago, if you were in Washington and you said, what are the problems with China? You would have said there are four big issues which are bedeviling our relationship with China. Currency manipulation, cyber stealing, cyber espionage for commercial purposes, climate, climate change issues, and the South China Sea. What's most remarkable today is though everybody is saying things are in terrible shape with China, three of those four issues have been managed and have more or less gone away. China sees not a currency manipulator. Trump is way out of date on this. Or it's not manipulating for trade purposes, it's manipulating for other purposes that are more political. But the, that issue is not the issue that it was. Similarly, on issues of climate, uh, compare Obama and in, in China in Copenhagen at the UN climate conference where there was bitterness and discord with Obama and China and particularly Xi in Paris this past December in which you had the two countries more or less coming to a common position. That's enormous change. And it was based on an Obama-Xi agreement in between. It wasn't a multilateral thing. Then compare the issue on cyber espionage. Washington was totally stirred up four years ago about uh, the fact that China was stealing our, our trade secrets and our uh, industrial uh, uh, property, intellectual property, and using it for commercial purposes. When Obama and Xi reached an agreement in Washington in September, the very end of September 2015, 
China had changed its declaratory policy 180 degrees, and it agreed that it would not use cyber espionage for commercial purposes. That is a total change. What's more, they took it to the group of 20 and multilateralized it. And I was, as I said, in Washington last week talking to some people who were very involved with this, and they said Chinese behavior has changed. Not that its cyber espionage has gone down, neither is ours, but that it is not doing the same sort of theft of intellectual property from American companies for commercial purposes that she agreed not to do a year, a little over a year ago. So those are three big issues where the U.S. and China has managed the relationship. And that, to me, is a sign that the strategy that we were talking about when Ezra and I were thinking about this is shaping the environment for China, not trying to contain them. If they're bullies, they contain themselves, but basically working to manage a place where they have a larger say within the international system is a workable strategy. The one area it hasn't worked on so far is the South China Sea, uh, though even there the game is far from over as to how they'll eventually uh, settle down or not on that issue. But at any point, what you have is something where the overall alliance structure I think we're going to preserve. I would argue that the prospects for dealing with the integration of China into the international system of institutions is working, but we just don't know whether Trump is going to go along with that or not. And he hasn't given us any real signals to tell us how that will work out. The things he said in the campaign were quite radical. Whether they will turn out to be radical in the sense of upsetting this policy or not, uh, we don't know. And that's why I told you as I began my talk, don't believe a word I have to say. <laughs> uh, first of all, I want to thank uh, Joe Nye for bringing me to Washington. Uh, he was an international relations specialist who had worked in a lot of different parts of the world. And he became head of the National Intelligence Council and brought me as an Asian specialist, so that exposed me to international affairs. One of the things that he asked me to do while I was here is to try to draw together some scenarios. So what I want to try to do today is draw together three possible scenarios for thinking what might happen as a kind of a guideline to, to channel our thinking about this very uncertain future. I have just a few <clears throat> preliminary comments. First of all, <clears throat> I thought it's, we do know a few things. We uh, do know, have some sense of what kind of person Trump is. Uh, we have some sense of the people he's appointed. And from what I gather, that the general, uh, the Marine general he's appointed to defense is really quite a, a solid, experienced, thoughtful, balanced guy who somehow has the potential of being able to talk back to, uh, to Trump and say, no, we're not going to do that, and have some real credibility and the kind of person who might be able to do that. <clears throat> uh, secondly, we have some sense of Flynn, the kind of person who comes from a defense intelligence background, which, uh, and from what I hear from people who know him, is that he's the kind who can get carried away with some big theory, uh, and it can be a kind of a plot theory, uh, and that he doesn't have as much depth in terms of working with a lot of other countries 
uh, some of the national security advisors <clears throat> in the past. Uh, the other preliminary comment I want to make is about the Taiwan phone call, because I think that does tell us uh, something. Uh, first of all, the Taiwan phone call is, is not a, 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 a fluke, and it's not something that she just suddenly decided and he suddenly decided to accept it. Uh, we do know that the Taiwan papers uh, announced that she was planning to make the call, so that was clearly understood. And we do know that some people uh, who want to change U.S.-China uh, and Taiwan relations have been active in helping to arrange that. So that, that's not a fluke. And I think um, uh, the reason uh, that some of us worry about that is it shows that Trump did not go to professionals and it was not cautious in checking out uh, with a lot of other uh, people uh, before he made that phone call. Uh, the other thing we can uh, say about that phone call is that so far uh, mainland China has responded in quite a, a moderate, sensible way. Uh, they have said, that, in effect, that the, they don't think this is necessarily what Trump is going to be like later on, and it doesn't necessarily indicate any big change of policy. But I think we can also expect they're going to be looking at it very carefully. And <clears throat> what I, what I, uh, what uh, worries me, and I think a lot of others about that phone call, um, is it may turn out to be more difficult for Taiwan as a, as a result of the phone call. It may not have been wise for Tsai Ing-wen to do that, because that may mean a lot more mainland pressure on Taiwan. <clears throat> and uh, I think it also shows uh, that uh, there, there, there is reason to worry that Trump might begin to push the Taiwan uh, policy, and that there are a lot of people who may take this as a as a kind of balloon for pushing uh, Taiwan independence in a bigger way, and that could be very worrisome. Uh, now, in thinking about scenarios, one of the things you try to do is say, first of all, there are some big things that have very slight chance of happening, but could overwhelm what happens. For example, if something should happen in North Korea, if there should be a collapse there, or if they should uh, fire some more weapons, that could create some big tensions, and there could be uh, some breakthrough, and uh, maybe Professor Lee will uh, talk about that. Uh, we also, there could be other kinds of terrorism uh, that could uh, really wreak havoc on any of the countries, in China, the United States. Uh, it could uh, wreak uh, havoc on all kinds of systems. Uh, <clears throat> we also, uh, there's a chance that uh, there could be a collision uh, uh, in the South China Sea or the East China Sea uh, that would make tensions uh, much worse. And then there's always a possibility that financial collapse could in, occur in one or more of the countries. Uh, all of these things, uh, one would have to assign a very low probability, but uh, any uh, thoughtful leader or group of leaders who are trying to think about the future uh, has to be prepared and think about those. Uh, now, in thinking about and trying to create scenarios, what I've <clears throat> done in my mind is try to think what are the, the, the largest powers and the largest overall forces in <clears throat> uh, Asia. And I think the, the, the big movers are still the United States and China, and what these two countries do are going to be very critical. Uh, <clears throat> the first uh, scenario I'm going to call muddling through, uh, the United States muddling through. The second would be uh, China playing a very positive role 
uh, in international affairs somewhat replacing the United States. And the third would be if China uh, pushing uh, either with Taiwan or some other areas that may lead to a very great deal of increase of tension in the area. So the first scenario, why is, is it possible to think there may be some muddling through? First of all, uh, Trump has been able to change his opinion uh, without any big deal, so that uh, when he's, he makes a mistake or does something wrong, uh, he doesn't uh, get hung up on what he said before. Uh, and so you can say that uh, he, he's shown that he's capable of, of changing and adapting. Uh, and uh, it's also true, of course, that we have a very large bureaucracy. We have a large uh, legal, uh, well-developed legal system. Uh, and a lot of the things that Trump uh, casually says he's going to do may turn out to be uh, harder than he thinks. And there is uh, opposition w within uh, Congress. There could be opposition within Congress among the bureaucrats. Uh, bureaucrats everywhere have uh, the potential of slowing things down when a leader tries to do something that they think is foolish and unwise. And one can imagine all kinds of creative uh, efforts uh, of bureaucrats. And of course, we have the liberal establishment on the east, which most of our most of us are a part of, uh, who will be uh, publishing things and on our on our toes to do anything to catch him. And there'll be places like the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, which will be uh, ready to help out those who are attacked. Uh, so that we have a lot of uh, dynamic democratic uh, forces in this country. And we also uh, have other countries that are quite sophisticated. I think that uh, Trump may say a lot of, uh, or may write a lot of Twitter things that are uh, very odd and very peculiar. <clears throat> but it, it, I think other countries, uh, Japan and China, have, have particularly have shown a, a capacity to respond to those and say, okay, well, here's this kind of guy, and we'll still find ways to dealing with him. And I think China's response so far to this uh, phone call from Tsai Ing-wen, uh, from Taiwan to, to Trump, is an indication that some of these other countries, despite the silly things that he may say, or, or the lack of uh, thoughtful uh, responses that he, he may make, that there, there are a lot of, ex the world is pretty sophisticated, and Kennedy School has done a lot to train some sophisticated people around the world, uh, so that they, they know how to read this, and they, they may not over-respond these funny, peculiar things. So I, I would say there's there's a pretty good chance that we can muddle through. So that's my number one scenario. My second scenario is that uh, China uh, makes some positive gains and makes a significant uh, advance in becoming sort of a constructive world power that's playing a key role in world developments and uh, in uh, doing this, I think, as, as Joe said, there's some already some examples. And if one looks at the Asia um, Development Bank, the, the Asia uh, Infrastructure Development Bank that the uh, Chinese have developed, the idea that one road, Ilui uh, uh, Idai, the one road and one belt, that idea is uh, quite a constructive role. And they've, I think in the bank, they've shown willingness to take in other countries and to be rather understanding that America didn't join right away, European countries. And now that Japan 
uh, through the uh, already has some joint developments with the bank, show that they're they're playing that in a fairly open, constructive, uh, international way. So I think uh, that <clears throat> a lot of countries in Asia, and, and I'll look forward to what our other speakers have to say about this, now feel that the, you know, there are two big powers they have to worry about, the United States and China, and they will have to adjust to both, that they will need to turn to the United States for security, and that for economic trade is already so big, it's much larger with most of those countries than the United States, and that we've already seen now a, a, a flip, at least on the president of, of Philippines, who seem to be very anti-Chinese now, to be willing to work with the Chinese. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that all of Philippines is suddenly in China's pocket. Uh, they'll still keep up a defense relationship with the United States. But that uh, Philippines is already making some adjustment. Malaysia is already making some adjustment. Uh, and Australia is already making some adjustment. And uh, South Korea, if it can get beyond its uh, current inter, uh, internal development issues, uh, it will probably come back to, again to have more contacts uh, with China than they had before uh, they, uh, South Korea began to bend toward us, toward the THAAD. So <clears throat> I think it is possible uh, if the Chinese are able uh, to play a relatively moderate role in international affairs, for China to emerge uh, to make significant advances in being a, uh, in climate issues and so forth, to begin to play a role, and the United States would play a decreased role. If you wanted to be dramatic about it, you could say that the post-World War II uh, era, when the United States dominated, will begin to edge off and be replaced by an uh, era when, if anything, China, at least in Asia, uh, as, as an equal, it may be not in defense issues, but uh, in economic and in foreign policy issues where they could begin to play a positive role. A third scenario I would see uh, would be uh, for China uh, to begin to press too hard and to get all kinds of reactions, uh, maybe call this a conflict uh, scenario, where they begin to push uh, hard uh, on other countries uh, in the South China Sea, they could push hard on Japan, uh, on the Senkaku or the Okinawa, or, uh, and uh, the risks of conflict would greatly increase. I think also there's a significant risk that they may push hard on Taiwan. I think it's very unlikely, uh, I, I would personally say, close to zero chance that they would try to invade Taiwan, but they can put a lot of other pressures. They can put a lot of economic pressures. Uh, they can begin to harass all kinds of people from Taiwan. They can begin to reduce their role in international affairs uh, and create uh, much more tension uh, in the region and put a lot of pressure on other countries to publicize things as China wants to publicize uh, and to not to show any kind of kind, uh, positive response to people like the Dalai Lama and Taiwan representatives. And it would be a very tense period to which the United States might over-respond. And sort of part of the reason I worry about Trump is this kind of unpredictable person who doesn't necessarily listen to professional advice is that it's quite possible uh, that uh, he would respond in a very tough way that would be more provocative to China and move into that scenario. 
So uh, anyhow, that's my best guess as to what I think are the greatest possibilities. I think Japan and the United States will remain relatively good. I think for Abe's point of view, uh, it's worked out rather well. I mean, it, the Japanese use the term gaiatsu, foreign pressure, to accomplish what Abe wants to accomplish. There's a slight increase in military expenses in, in Japan, and the visit already with Trump, I think, looks as if the Japan-United States relationship is not going to be a problem uh, under Trump. That would be my, my personal guess. And so those are what I would think are the three most likely scenarios. But I just offer those as a way of trying to think about the future, and possibly others have other scenarios. Thank you. Thank you. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank the Asia-related centers at Harvard University um, for the invitation to speak here today. It's a real honor to be appearing on the same panel as um, these distinguished um, scholars. Um, I've, I've been in Harvard in various capacities. Um, I was most recently at the Harvard Law School to give a talk on um, the rule of law post the Philippines against China arbitration award. And um, I, in fact, I see some familiar faces in the audience. It's always really great to be back. Thank you all for coming. I'm looking forward to the discussions that follow. In my talk today, I'd like to focus on what Trump means for uh, Southeast Asia, including um, what he might mean for the South China dispute, which, as Professor Nye mentioned earlier, is one of the um, very thorny issues in US-China relations. Um, as has also been highlighted, it's still very early on in the day and anything can change. However, I think it's wonderful, it's great that we're having this conversation early. I do not think that Trump's policy on Asia at least is set in stone. And I think this is a very important time to be seeking uh, to shape our understanding and priorities of US interests in the region. Now, I think the first point to note in relation to Southeast Asia and its regional grouping, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, is that it matters to the United States. The region is strategically important because it sits astride many of the world's busiest shipping lanes. It is also um, of significant, it also has significant economic potential. Southeast Asia is, the states in ASEAN actually collectively comprise the third largest economy in Asia and the seventh largest in the world. Its population is young and dynamic, and more than 65% of its 632 million people are below the age of 35. In addition, the United States and ASEAN and its member states share an interest in sustaining a rules-based order in the Asia-Pacific. So in this respect, the United States has a willing and able partner in the region in order to maintain a stable and rules-based order. Now, given the rivalry between intra- and extra-regional uh, powers, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations stands at the heart of any viable security architecture in the region. Sustained engagement with ASEAN actually increases Washington's flexibility and influence and takes the edge off any direct US-Sino competition. Now, President Obama was quick to recognize these interests in Southeast Asia and made Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, the linchpin of his presidency. 
he was he has been credited for establishing an enduring framework for engagement with the region. Now the question is whether a President Trump will in fact be able to build on this very strong foundation. The first or early signs are rather worrying. President-elect uh, Trump's intention to withdraw from the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which is a high-standard multilateral trade deal which includes four Southeast Asian countries and eight other Pacific Rim countries, including the United States, is clearly a setback. Now, the rejection of the deal will bring about the very things that the United States fears. A chilling effect on foreign investment in the United States, bad terms for American goods and services, and a more empowered China. Already, regional newspapers in Southeast Asia are talking about a revival or new life being breathed into the regional, um, regional comprehensive economic partnership, the RCEP. Um, and this is a trade deal that is spearheaded by China, but uh, lost out steam, but is now looking to move forward with US um, cold feet on the TPP. Now, it's often been said that for Southeast Asia, economics is security. So, so economics might not be enough. We see that with China seeking to incentivize Southeast Asia into, onto its side, but it certainly helps. Um, rejecting the TPP sends the unfortunate signal that the United States engagement with Southeast Asia is narrow and in any event cannot be counted upon. It's important to remember that many countries in Southeast Asia signed onto the TPP at considerable political cost. In the case of Vietnam, for instance, it undertook adjustments, painful adjustments. It's willing to undertake painful adjustments to its labor and human rights laws. In the case of Malaysia, um, the government actually stood up to protests by Malay ethnic groups who are worried about what the TPP meet, might mean for uh, affirmative action in favor of the country's majority ethnic group, the Malays. But apart from the TPP, another concern for the region is where East Asia and within that Southeast Asia stands in the next administration's list of priorities. Now, given the shift in economic and geopolitical center, uh, the center of gravity towards Asia, I do not think that a Trump administra administration is likely to disengage from the region. However, while the Obama administration understands that ASEAN is an important part of the region's architecture and has worked within it, the next one might well decide to deal directly with China. As a former, former permanent secretary of Singapore's Ministry of Foreign Affairs has said, Trump's highly transactional approach might also translate into a lack of patience with ASEAN, with its stress on form and its doddering processes. So ASEAN has been rightfully, in some cases, actually derided as a talk shop, and President Trump, with his um, emphasis on immediate outcomes, might have very little patience for this. The next administration might also have less tolerance for the simultaneous balancing and hedging that almost all countries in Southeast Asia, even claimants in the South China Sea, engage in. Now, to a certain extent, this balancing and hedging is um, to be understood, and, 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 and the current administration might not like it, but accepts it. Um, it's also probably a good thing because having these rather looser associations rather than hard coalitions helps to reduce the potential for conflict. 
But at the end of the day, the extent of balancing and hedging that takes place in the region will depend on first, demonstrable US commitment, and second, Chinese behavior. And with a rising and more assertive China giving rise to anxiety in the region, countries there, I can assure you, are looking at how best to position themselves. Now, the US, if it's seen to be turning its back on the region, can expect certain responses from the region, and this is likely to hurt the United, the United States position and standing. One important litmus test, if not the most important litmus test of US commitment to the region is the South China Sea. Unfortunately, uh, President-elect Trump, President Trump has said very little on this issue and arguably even less that is coherent. So in March interviews with the Washington Post and the New York Times, candidate Trump appeared to suggest that he would use trade as a tool to get China to stop what he described as ambitious behavior that disregards US interests. However, he also appeared to distance the United States from the issue by saying that other countries, in fact, have a greater interest in the issue. In a September -ish, uh, interview with The Economist, he also added that the South China Sea is very far away and that China had already built there. So in a sense, what else can be done, right? Um, Tr Trump's words unfortunately buy into Beijing's narrative that the South China Sea dispute only concerns claimants. However, I think most uh, people would agree that non-claimants, including the United States, have critical interests in first, the peaceful settlement of disputes, second, the rule of law, and third, freedom of navigation. And this is critical for especially trade-faring nations. To, to, this, to this list of interests, non-claimant members of ASEAN would also add an interest in ASEAN centrality, which the South China Sea dispute is undermining. Trump's statement that China has already built in the South China Sea also is unfortunate because it appears to ready, too readily concede the strategic landscape to China. It's true that little can be done to reverse China's island building and construction efforts. In fact, in the recent Philippines against China case, um, the tribunal was very careful to not to pronounce that such activities were in and of themselves unlawful. What the tribunal limited itself to saying was that such construction activities were unlawful because they violated environmental provisions, because they aggravated and extended the ongoing dispute before the tribunal, and because they had the effect of tampering with evidence. But it never said that such activities were in and of themselves unlawful. Given that the United States cannot do anything to reverse these activities, what can be done by the United States and other countries? I think it's really important that the United States and other countries not drop the ball in this respect, because what it can do is to limit the degree of control that Beijing can assert from the features it occupies. So China might control these features, but what maritime rights it can claim from them and the sort of de, de facto control it exerts from them, that is still an open question and that is something that the international community can, um, can affect. Now while Trump's words might suggest US retrenchment from the region, a piece by his foreign policy advisors that appeared in the foreign policy magazine the day before elections might suggest the opposite. 
it states that Trump will pursue a strategy of peace through strength, through first building up the US economy, through avoiding bad trade deals, and second, through rebuilding the Navy, Navy from its current 274 ships to 350 ships. Of course, this still leads, leaves us with questions. Ships are one thing, but where they are going to be deployed and for what purpose, that's another question. Now, I, I've in this talk identified three principal areas for Southeast Asia, three principal areas of concern for Southeast Asia. The first one is the US withdrawal from the TPP. The second is a reduced attention to ASEAN and its member states. And the third one is a weak or ineffectual defense of interests and principles, particularly in the South China Sea. If these three events come to pass, if one or three of these events come to pass, they will feed into the Chinese narrative of an unreliable America and could fundamentally alter the strategic landscape in Asia. Some analysts have argued that there are institutional checks and balances within the United States, which will be able to limit the amount of damage that a President Trump can do. I'm not entirely reassured by this. A stable and prosperous world order based on respect for international law is not only about limiting damage, it is about creating positive conditions for peace and prosperity. I would argue that a Trump administration faces not only dangers of commission, such as if, he, if, if the United States withdraws from the TPP, the United States also faces dangers of omission insofar as it could, could potentially neglect an important region and failed, fail to defend principles such as the rule of law. And this would have irrevo irrevocable consequences. Now, founding father of the founding father of Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew, once said that Asia is not a movie in which you can freeze developments and hope to return to find things unchanged. If the United States wants to affect the strategic evolution of Asia, it cannot come and go as it pleases. I can go into some specific recommendations for the next administration, but I think my time is soon up. So I'll end by urging that the next administration, firstly, engage Southeast Asia early on in the day. The region is anxious and is watching the United States closely. Early engagement will help to put the relationship on a surer footing. The United States should also ensure that engagement with Southeast Asia is broad, deep, and consistent, as is likely to be the regard that Southeast Asian countries hold for the United States should it show to itself to be a loyal and reliable partner. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Gordon and the Asia Center. Thank you, Professor Farr. Thank you for this opportunity. With your indulgence, I would like first to mention the mundane, then move on to address the arcane, then intone on the inane, and pontificate <laughs> on the profane and humbly close with some commentary on the humane. First, the mundane. The Pakune scandal that has engulfed South Korea, the crux of the problem is the following. The lack of plausible deniability. Her predecessors arguably committed greater sins in terms of the degree of criminality, massacring civilians, systematic election rigging, graft, corruption, extortion in the amount of hundreds of dollars. However, Park Geun-hye's transgressions 
pardon me, Puckner's transgressions resonate powerfully in daily lives. These are not abstract crimes that we cannot really easily identify with. Her crimes, transgressions resonate along generational as well as socioeconomic lines. These are palpably real. In other words, she cannot say, oh, my deputies did it, I didn't know. She cannot say, as Kim Jong-il told the visiting Japanese Prime Minister Koizumi on September 17, 2002, with respect to the abduction issue, some rogue elements in the security apparatus did it. She cannot say, my dog ate my homework. As defamatory as that is to all the good canine citizens of the world, my dog ate my paper has greater credibility than Pakunes three to date, three apologies. And this problem, of course, has serious foreign policy implications. The one big variable that we don't talk much about today is the upcoming South Korean election. It may take place as scheduled a year from now, or it may take place within a few months, perhaps as early as next June. And of course, the opposition party in the South Korean political system has all the momentum now. It is their presidential race to lose. And if a more left-leaning leader were to be elected president, we could conceivably return to the old days of virtually unconditional engagement of North Korea, which may come to make quite complicated the emerging global financial sanctions regime vis-a-vis -vis North Korea. Next, the arcane. As Richard Nixon was mulling over his plan, a plan, to withdraw an entire division of US troops from South Korea in 1969, a January 30th National Intelligence Estimate report noted that, quote, North Korea's continued violence will be of great economic cost to the Park government, that would be Park Chung-hee, Park Geun-hye's uh, father, and also a cause for public dissatisfaction against the Park government. The Joint Chiefs of Staff, understandably, was very much against the plan and observed that the US troops in South Korea is a symbol, a commitment to the defense of not only South Korea, but Asia as a whole. Henry Kissinger was quite concerned as well. He also noted that the troops' withdrawal problem has, quote, definite political overtones. Regardless of all these misgivings, 20,000 personnel were indeed withdrawn as of 1971. This came as, quote, a profound shock to Park Chung-hee, and Park Chung-hee noted that while I applaud President Nixon's Nixon doctrine, just don't do it to me, please, but it was done, it was fait accompli. That led the Park Jong-hee government to try to pursue in secret a nuclear weapons program, an attempt that was in the end thwarted by the United States by further threat or further or entire full withdrawal of US troops. Today, with each North Korean provocation nuclear test, there is increasingly a taboo that is being broken in South Korea a call for South Korea to develop its own indigenous nuclear weapons. South Korea is not there yet,
but that seems to be the direction that the nation is moving in. If Mr. Trump were to try to withdraw U.S. troops from South Korea, that could conceivably be a catalyst for South Korea to cross the nuclear Rubicon. Unlike in the 70s, the United States today does not have the leverage to thwart to prevent South Korea from getting there. I think much in the same manner that the U.S. Uh, accepted the British nuclear tests in 1950s, uh, much in the same way that the United States accepted France as a nuclear power in 1960 and later Israel, the United States will have to live with it. Uh, the U.S. is not likely to break off the diplomatic relationship with South Korea over South Korea's nuclearization. This indeed, as Professor Nye mentioned, would be a radical departure from post-1945 norms of international relations in Northeast Asia. Now the inane. That Mr. Trump is ignorant of foreign policy is of course a great liability but maybe it is also an opportunity. Perhaps he is pliable and able to learn. All of that remains to be seen, of course. But the fact that Mr. Trump to date has, seems to have surrounded himself with so-called hardliners doesn't necessarily mean, I would say, that U.S. policy toward North Korea hereafter will be all hardline, bluster, strong rhetoric, condemnation, and so forth. George W. Bush surrounded himself with some prominent hardliners and in terms of rhetoric and policy took a hardline approach at first. But once North Korea escalated with its first nuclear test in October 2006, the Bush administration, for lack of a more diplomatic expression, caved, did a complete turnaround, uh, reeling from losses in the congressional election and the war in Iraq the Bush administration made all kinds of concessions, too numerous to mention, but some in blatant violation of U.S. codes. Naturally, North Korea was unmoved and continued to march down the nuclear path, and fully a decade later today stands on the verge of nuclear breakout. Bush also called Kim Jong-il a pygmy, said things like, I loathe Kim Jong-il, um, Access of evil, you remember, of course, in the State of the Union address. These are all meaningless, unnecessary uh, proclamations that, in my estimation, brought no national interest, nothing beneficial to the United States. Uh, it is really inane. The Obama administration barely did better. Mr. Obama, President Obama, has said that I was determined not to repeat the mistakes of the past when I came into the White House, whereby they, North Korea, provokes and we give them concessions. Uh, he has certainly achieved that, but that, I would submit to you, is setting the bar a bit low. Uh, I think under Obama's watch, North Korea has conducted several nuclear and long-range missile tests. The situation has <coughs> deteriorated. So the Obama administration has not done that much in terms of addressing the North Korea problem. Profane, I don't mean Mr. Trump's lewd comments or Kim Jong-un's lewd comments. Kim Jong-un has called the South Korean president, and I quote, a dirty old prostitute, uh, has called President Obama, quote, wicked black monkey. 
And oftentimes we are dismissive of such childish and offensive rhetoric because we tend to patronize North Korea. But when I say profane, I mean the following. As the 372-page-long UN Commission of Inquiry report in Human Rights in North Korea, published more than two years ago on February 17, 2014, states, the degree, nature, scale of human rights violations in the DPRK, quote, has no parallel in the contemporary world. I urge you to read, not the report in its entirety perhaps, but the section on the regime's systematic discrimination, deprivation of the right to food, and other related aspects of the right to life, right to life, pages 144 to 208, I believe. Uh, the report makes the case that the regime is guilty of deliberate mass starvation, deliberate mass starvation. That gives an entirely new meaning, new definition to crime against humanity. I believe there are ways to address these problems. North Korea has certain systematic, uh, systematic uh, vulnerabilities. Uh, the Obama administration has yet to enforce fully North Korea sanctions, financial targeted financial sanctions that it is obliged to implement uh, in the wake, in the aftermath of President Obama signing into law back in February. Finally, a very tough sanctions legislation. The political will is not there. No UN member state or the international community at large has ever uniformly enforced sanctions. Now we have tough sanctions legislation uh, at the UN as well, but UN Security Council resolutions, I suppose, are a bit like an individual's New Year's resolutions. Uh, at first, there is great resolve and full compliance, but ennui, lethargy, non-compliance, and blatant violations set in, and the problem grows. I think it is encouraging that Japan and South Korea and the United States just last Friday declared unilateral sanctions against North Korea in coordination with the other two allies. And uh, these are potentially quite uh, powerful. At the same time, sanctions are, are not magic bullet. Uh, they are not a panacea like diplomacy or conventional deterrence. It takes time. It takes a lot of concerted effort. And whether Mr. Trump realizes all this or not remains to be seen. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, and uh, we planned the session so that there would be just a bit of time for the panelists to respond to each other. Uh, I wonder if I could start out on this end of the panel by asking, I was very happy to hear that both uh, Joe and Ezra were relatively optimistic about the U.S.-Japan relations part of the story, but I'd like to ask a bit more about the basis for that optimism. And I'm thinking particularly about Ezra Vogel's two first and third scenario, the first of which is muddling through, which implies actually that decision-making could slow down and there could be uncertainty about what direction U.S. policy should take. And the third scenario, in which China might aggressively take advantage of the current situation, in both of those cases, if, for example, Senkaku were to be taken by the Chinese, it would require, presumably, uh, a credible response and prompt response on the part of the U.S. So I'm a bit concerned about, uh, or could you elaborate on 
why you feel as optimistic as you do? Well, we should <clears throat> never underestimate the capacity for humans to make mistakes and miscalculate. But uh, it helps to look at what the basic interests are. And if you look at um, the, it, the value of the U.S.-Japan alliance to Trump, if he really does want to be tough with China, uh, and you look at the fact that what Trump complained about, which was the lack of allies coming and spending for themselves, you realize that Japan's host nation support is the highest of any country, basically. Uh, then you have a reality of a common interest that this alliance is very much in the U.S. interest, which will appeal, uh, whatever we think of Trump, to somebody like Defense Secretary-designate Mattis. Now, there's anyone with a reality principle who looks at this situation will say, don't mess this up. Now, let me go back to where I started. Humans have enormous capacity for messing things up. But my worry is less that they will uh, pull out of the U.S.-Japan alliance or do something uh, to fracture that uh, or make the Chinese believe that there, that there isn't defense of the Senkaku, so take a risk <coughs> now. Uh, after all, you've had a president, a secretary of state, and a secretary of defense of the United States say that Article 5 of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty includes the Senkakus. That would be a big risk for China to take. I worry more about something a little bit different. Remember when George W. Bush came into office, the Hainan Island collision between an American electronics surveillance plane and a Chinese fighter? That wasn't planned. But what's interesting is you had Bush, who didn't know much about international affairs, surrounded by Colin Powell and Rich Armitage, who did, and they managed that extremely well. Question is, will Trump have the temperament to manage some such accident? Um, so I don't see it as a deterrence failure where the Chinese think we can grab the Senkakus now, I think seeing it more as if there's an accident, do we have in place at the top somebody who knows how to manage a crisis? And that worries me more than, than that the Chinese will think I can grab the Senkakus now and get away with it. Could I also ask Joe a question? I mean, one of the uh, issues that I think we were very clear about when it looks as if there might be something, the Senkakus, is that we have a defense alliance with Japan. Do you think that will be clear in the new administration? I think so, yeah. No, I think, I think that Mattis and uh, even Flynn will, I think, get that pretty quickly. Uh, the other reason, aside from the basic reality principle, I'm rather optimistic, well, the two couple reasons about Japan and the United States. One is that I think in the 70 years since World War II that we have very good understanding with Japan. I think the depth of understanding uh, between Japan and the United States, uh, for example, the decision of Japanese companies to locate in just about every state where they have contacts with local uh, Congress people from that state. Uh, and the while we don't have as many Japanese students coming to the United States as we did, we still have a lot. 
And uh, for example, the uh, program that the Mansfield Foundation has, where diet, where people from the bureaucracy from the United States work in the bureaucracy in Japan in all kinds of areas, and the Japanese have that in Washington. So the depth of understanding and subtlety of uh, that relationship and, and the confidence that it works. I mean, the, the, the Japan uh, is very well liked uh, around the world, although Chinese, it's not true in China, but the, the rest of the world, you do polls, and Japan is very much respected. And I think in the United States, that's also true. So uh, I think that um, in the combination between the basic reality principle and the level of contact and understanding um, is, uh, makes one really optimistic about Japan-U.S. relations. And let me finally just direct a question to this end of the panel, which is, with the Trump presidency, what is the thing you worry about the most? <laughs> For your region. Well, I would not be one ever to underestimate the power of hamburger diplomacy. You'll recall Mr. Trump a few months ago said, among other things, yeah, I'll bring him over to the U.S., the North Korean leader. We'll talk over a burger. Actually, President Obama did that with the former Russian president, Medvedev, had a, a shirtless, I mean, sorry, sorry tieless, uh, very casual-looking hamburger lunch once. Um, but this kind of flippant or rather condescending view of the adversary never works in one's interest. I think the view that North Korea simplistically merely reacts to external stimuli, whatever the big powers do or say, and lacks a strategic mindset of its own, that false reading, misreading of North Korea has really not worked in the best interest of the United States and its friends. So I worry that Mr. Trump not being completely fully aware of the complexities of the situation in the world and in the Korean Peninsula may think in very simplistic ways and spurred by perhaps an inkling of uh, megalomania um, uh, self-absorption, let's just say. Perhaps he would think, if I really go to Pyongyang or just bring him over, have a man-to-man, heart-to-heart talk, we can work it out and make all kinds of mistakes and concessions in the meantime. Thank you for that question. Um, obviously, there are, various, there are many things I worry about the Trump presidency in, um, uh, in respect of Southeast Asia. However, perhaps because of my background as a lawyer, um, my greatest concern is um, the gradual erosion of the rule of law in the region. And in a sense, it's, it's a bit of an irony what we're seeing now, what we could possibly be seeing now. I think Southeast Asian countries have never been necessarily known, with the exception perhaps of Singapore, Southeast Asian countries have not um, been well known for um, trumping the rule of law. However, we've seen um, Southeast, some of these countries actually stand up uh, to promote it uh, more recently. I'll give you one example that has missed the attention of the international community. Um, when the United States conducted its Freedom of Navigation operation in January this year, this Freedom of Navigation operation was conducted around um, in the Parasol Islands, around Triton Island. 
And the operation was in fact um, exercised to protest countries' requirements of prior authorization or notification before uh, a user state can, um, can exercise innocent passage within the territorial sea of a feature. And this requirement for prior authorization or notification is something that China mandates and Taiwan as well as Vietnam too. The response from China was to be expected. China protested uh, this uh, US operation. However, Vietnam and Taiwan remained silent. And in fact, uh, Vietnam came out to say that it supported freedom of navigation um, in the South China Sea and said absolutely nothing about uh, the flouting of the requirement of prior notification required under Vietnamese law. So my concern really is with the Trump presidency, um, he might not see the actual value because it doesn't translate easily into dollars and cents. He might not see the actual value of the rule of law and how it helps to uh, provide a stable system, a stable set of um, expectations for how um, states can expect other states to behave. He might not see the value in how it provides the superstructure or the foundation for um, conduct in international relations. So that's my foremost concern in terms of, um, there's also one point that I would also like to mention because it doesn't affect, it doesn't actually affect other um, East, Northeast Asian countries so much, but the concern is that Trump's anti-Muslim rhetoric or the anti-Muslim rhetoric um, said in the past by some of his, um, the people that he, have, he has appointed to his administration, that will gravely affect Southeast Asia. Um, two very important Southeast Asian countries, Malaysia and Indonesia, are both majority Muslim. In fact, in Indonesia, which is a huge country, over 90% are Muslim. Singapore is minority Muslim, but Trump's anti-Muslim rhetoric puts it in a bind with regard to its policy towards the United States. So in other words, Trump's anti-Muslim rhetoric or any anti-Muslim rhetoric which emerges from the administration could jeopardize the ability of these countries within Southeast Asia to have strong relationships with the United States. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. And I'd like to now open it up and uh, ask you to keep your questions brief and also to direct your question to one person on the panel, and then if somebody else feels very strongly, they can come in. But we'd like to get a number of questions. So I'll take three questions, and then uh, ask the panelists to respond. Yes. Trump basically pretty much destroy strategic ambiguity uh, which United States maintained to deal with Taiwan since Richard Nixon. Is that possible? I first, the, the, the question was, could there be uh, a fourth uh, kind of agreement uh, with uh, China? I doubt whether we would have the, the patience or the planning or the organization uh, or the intention <clears throat> to go uh, that particular way. Uh, but I do think that it is possible, particularly, I think, if John Huntsman should be the Secretary of State, somebody who has uh, a very deep understanding, speaks good Chinese, very deep understanding, or if he should become Secretary of State, or if somebody uh, like, like the governor of Iowa uh, should become ambassador to Beijing. You remember the governor of Iowa 20 years ago hosted uh, Xi Jinping when he came to Iowa. 
and had a very good relationship with him from 20 years ago and again from this recent visit. So if we have channels like that, uh, uh, I think it's possible uh, to have uh, still quite a good understanding uh, with China and to have this, uh, despite uh, the unpredictability of what might come from Trump himself, if we have some solid people around him uh, who can manage that relationship. I think uh, what I worry about on the Chinese side is that while we have many professionals who know the United States very well, uh, at the very top in the Politburo, you have almost nobody who has, uh, maybe Wang Huning is a scholar of international relations, but nobody has really a good deep understanding of the outside world. And almost nobody has a good understanding of Japan. They have professionals who come up through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but that doesn't <coughs> uh, take the substitute for very deep, close personal relationship. So um, I, I, I do think that uh, while we, we now have so many channels with China and 300,000 Chinese students in the United States is wonderful, and I think compared to the Soviet Union contacts in those days, it's day and night. We just, the interaction with China is just so great. And yet, at the very top level, the kind of easy given, uh, the easy give and take, and the understanding and discussions that we can have with high-level Japanese, <clears throat> I think, has not yet taken uh, taken place with the, the very top level in China, and I think that uh, makes it a little more fragile uh, than I would like to see, despite uh, the very skilled professionals on the Chinese side. Sorry, I meant to take three questions, so I already I'm broke sorry. my own ground rules, and that tells you what's already happened to the rule of law. Yes. <laughs> Hi, my question is for Professor Nye. I was wondering what uh, your thoughts were on what a Trump presidency means for South Asia, especially given that he had a phone call that was, that's being dubbed as a fantastic phone call with Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif because he talked about the fantastic country Pakistan and its fantastic people, and Pakistan has already sent a special envoy to Washington to discuss uh, their relations in the future. Thank you. Okay, I'll take a third question from this quarter. Anyone over here? Anyone else in the middle section? Yes. Thank you. Um, my question is for Professor Joseph Nye, and it's about U.S.-Japan relations. And um, Michael Flynn said he um, doesn't plan to withdraw U.S. troops from Japan. So do you think Trump um, will actually withdraw um, U.S. troops from Japan? And to what extent um, would Trump stimulate discussions of nuclear armament in Japan. And today, Prime Minister Abe expressed his visit to Pearl Harbor this month. So do you think it will affect US-Japan relations in Trump administration? Thank you. Um, <clears throat> regarding South Asia, what, was, what struck me about the uh, what was alleged to be a, not a transcript, but a report of the phone call with Nawaz uh, Sharif was how uh, informal and poorly, and almost content-free. You're terrific, you're fantastic, so forth. Didn't tell you anything substantive about policy. I suspect, and here I'm again going on, on guesses, that 
uh, as he gets into office and realizes some of the problems we have with Pakistan related to Afghanistan and the role of ISI supporting terrorist groups in Afghanistan. Um, and he then realizes about the extent to which there has been a, a deepening of U.S.-Indian relations uh, before Modi and now with Modi. I suspect that um, South Asian policy probably won't change that much. I think that what you see now where uh, Obama didn't visit Pakistan because of the problems we have with Pakistan or parts of the Pakistan government relating to terrorism and uh, Afghanistan. And uh, on the other hand, where U.S.-Indian relations have become deeper economically and in security terms, I would guess that the policy towards South Asia will not change that much under Trump. Um, as for American uh, troop withdrawal from Japan, I would be surprised if there was significant troop withdrawal. Uh, there still is the lingering issue of what to do about Futemna and whether you're going to move Marines from Futemna to Hinoko and how will that go over in the politics of Okinawa and Tokyo. That's quite different, though, from withdrawing a significant number of American troops. I would, I would be, again, I would guess that there will not be a withdrawal. And those troops, of the American, presence of American troops in Japan are extremely important for the issue of nuclear guarantees because what they are is hostages. You can't bomb Japan without killing Americans. That means that if North Korea or China or anyone were to attack Japan, uh, it's a little bit like Berlin during the Cold War. Yes, you could do it, but you can't do it without killing Americans. And when you kill Americans, you're going to be in war with a nuclear power. So the presence of American troops in Japan uh, are extremely important to make the linkage between statements about the U.S.-Japan security treatment and on-the-ground reality. Uh, so I don't think they're going to be uh, withdrawn. I think Abe's decision to announce a visit to Pearl Harbor is more of a what has been a pretty smart set of tactics that Abe has followed since November 8th, getting in early on his visit with Trump and uh, now announcing a uh, visit to Pearl Harbor as the first Japanese uh, prime minister uh, to do that since 1941. I guess the prime minister didn't go on 41, but some other Japanese did. <laughs> and uh, I, so I, I think uh, uh, this is why I was relatively sanguine about the U.S.-Japan alliance uh, in my earlier comments, but with the proviso that um, uh, I could be wrong. Yes. China, with both China and Japan, is, is one-sided and disadvantageous for us. In your judgment, is it objectively true that we uh, need to adjust that trade relationship? Uh, well, 
I think that there have been a number of things in the U.S.-China trade relationship which are uh, imbalanced. I mean, the access that American companies have. Just take the Internet companies uh, and ask what happens to the big American Internet companies in access to the Chinese market as contrasted to Chinese companies' access to American markets. I mean, Alibaba's listed on the stock exchange. And you can find that in a lot of areas where there are asymmetries. On the other hand, the Americans have, have certainly regarded Huawei with suspicion. And CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investments in the U.S., has looked at a number of potential Chinese investments and said, uh, we're, not, we're not comfortable with the security implications of them. So there are lots of areas where you can see, uh, you know, in quotes, unfairness or asymmetries in trade. And it's also true, I think, in it, that when that about five or six years ago, China was keeping the rate of the yuan uh, artificially low to stimulate its trade. That, that, I think, is something which was true in the past, but not my trade economist friends tell me it's not the, the case right now. So yes, you can always find um, uh, cases of inequality in the trade. Overall, however, I think you can make a case that trade uh, uh, to China has been good for Americans and vice versa. Uh, but that's that when you parse it state by state, factory by factory, industry by industry, you can find lots of, of cases where that's not true. <clears throat> I might just uh, add one comment to that, and that is that, of course, uh, countries like uh, China, which has a lot of state uh, enterprises, and Japan, which has an industrial policy, they have a different structure than we do. And uh, But I think the, the basic issues have been that the passage of an industry from high-wage areas to lower-wage areas is the, the factor which really accounts for the hugest trade imbalance. Uh, and that uh, when it comes to issues like secrecy, of course, we will have to uh, find ways of countering it. And uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people in Washington who have already been watching very, very closely uh, issues like uh, cyber and special aid to uh, Chinese companies. And it could be get to be a problem in Internet uh, companies uh, and the question of whether they will use that. And we will have our own ways. And of course, we do aid defense-related industries. Even though it's not a state industrial policy, it does give aid to certain kinds of industries. So there are different structures depending on how you want to look at them. Let me just add a point, which, because uh, Ezra mentioned it, you cannot judge the fairness or unfairness or benefits or lack of benefits of trade from a bilateral trade deficit, which is what President-elect Trump has done. And I urge you to look at the article in the New York Times business section by Greg Mankiw, uh, who was a uh, uh, who was a professor here at Harvard, but had been. Uh, uh, working in uh, the Bush administration, You're, the trade deficit is affected by the rate of savings and investment and the flows of currencies, and it's not just bilateral, it's global. So when you say, as we've heard, we have this big trade deficit with China that proves it's unfair trade, no, it doesn't prove that. On this side, do we have a question? Uh, in the back, yes. 
This is a nuts and bolts question. We know that Trump has- Sorry, who's this directed to? Uh, since it's a nuts and bolts question, uh -huh. I don't know who to direct it to. Go ahead, go ahead. We know that Trump has refused security briefings. Secretary Kerry has said that he's not been briefed by the State Department before these phone calls. The photographs I've seen of the meeting with Abe does not show another American translator. Who is doing the translating for the phone calls that he's taking with these foreign leaders? <laughs> Probably ought to ask a Singaporean. <laughs> I would say that the voice in his head, maybe. <laughs> a question we I haven't a can't answer. I don't know either. Carter, do you have an answer to that? <laughs> Are we finished with that question? Well, we'll put it out there and take two okay. more. Go ahead. Uh, I'm not quite sure to whom to direct this question either, but probably Ezra, I think. Um, Trump has shown himself to have a very strong uh, inclination to separate his business um, from uh, politics and now from the running of the country, at least uh, to the extent that other uh, presidents and presidential candidates have. And I'm, I'm wondering, um, where is the greatest possible uh, potential conflict um, between his business interests uh, and um, uh, foreign policy that, that might arise and what form it might take? Okay. Uh Let's take a third question. Yes. Uh, yes, right there. I guess the question is, um, Trump is calling China's bluff in a way, right? See what cost China actually has. So my question is for uh, uh, Professor Vogel. In, view, in your view, what strategic cards does China have that would be really of importance to Trump? So how could China actually respond strategically? Thank you. Uh, well, I would hope that uh, China would choose to respond positively the way it has uh, to take advantage of uh, opportunities uh, with the Philippines and Malaysia uh, and uh, to invite them and build uh, economic interest. Uh, but uh, it also has the potential, uh, of course, of putting more pressure on Taiwan. Uh, and there are any number of pressures it can uh, put uh, on Taiwan in uh, terms of economic pressure by not... Uh, uh, sending certain goods by uh, not getting, uh, not not allowing Taiwan representatives to attend international organizations. Um, I think the danger of using anything very direct with the United States is that this could lead to a very conflictual situation. So, I, so my advice to China would be to try to avoid that one uh, and use the other ones uh, that maybe create pressure on Taiwan or create a positive pressure. On the one, the Carter's a very excellent question. I, I don't really know the answer to that one either. Uh, <clears throat> but I would assume that in terms of conflict of interest of, of Trump, that the, the watchdogs, you know, in the liberal press uh, that, that we belong to, uh, will be looking for any kind of opportunities. And they'll, they'll monitor that uh, very closely. And that he or his family will be in, in great trouble uh, if there were uh, conflicts of interest. I don't know whether our Singapore lawyer wants to comment on that one. 
<laughs> if I, I'm not the Sing a Singaporean lawyer, but just as a comment, <coughs> might it be in a certain way uh, that the extensive business interests that Trump has around the world, with truly a global empire, will be a corrective on extreme policies? In other words, predictability and stability are the one things you need, particularly for tourism, which hotels depend on, and in many other ways, uh, keeping economic relationships solid is going to be very important. I just throw this out. Uh, any, Maybe. Do you want to comment? Uh, any further comment of anyone? Well, I, I, yeah. I, I think that uh, yes, Trump has an interest in. Um, not seeing economic turmoil, which would destroy the value of his overseas investments. Um, but to go back to the prior question about uh, what levers does China have, if Trump were to put on a 45% tariff on uh, Chinese exports to the U.S., China could reciprocate uh, first by taking the U.S. to the World Trade Organization. Uh, that's a slow process, and that's a way of, of if you want, de-escalating it. Uh, but they could also uh, retaliate in terms of punishing the U.S. with counter-tariffs or with punishing particular American companies, Boeing being a, a nice fat target. Uh, uh, that then would create, I think, the kind of turmoil that might affect uh, trade relations more generally and markets might affect his interests. But um, I hope we're not going to get to that stage. Yes, and what's, go ahead. Here's a microphone coming. So my question is for Dr. Nye, um, Professor Nye. Um, I would like to ask, do you think Trump knows how to use soft power? And are you willing to advise him how to use soft power <laughs> in his presidency? Okay, that's one question. Sorry, that stopped me in my tracks. Yes, in the very back. Uh, yeah. Hi, uh, I don't have a question for any specific person, but I'd be interested to hear um, Professor uh, Vogel's and Professor Lee's views on this. Um, so there's been this narrative of a rising China for a long time now, and events such as the 2008 financial crisis really strengthened that narrative. To what extent has Trump's election to you know, the presidency um, you know, impacted this narrative? Do you think it, it's um, emboldened it, or do you think it doesn't matter? Okay, and a final question from Andy Gordon before we have a round of responses. Yes, this is actually similar to the question just asked, but um, Professor Lee, the implication from several of the other uh, presentations, especially around the TPP, was that one possible future scenario given the likely with abandoning by the United States of the TPP is the rise in the likelihood Southeast Asia uh, nations would cleave towards China more and some reconstituted different effort at a trade agreement. How does that likely to play out in the case of South Korea, which also was a party right to the TPP and probably made or 
how, in general, the likelihood that the emerging era under Trump will lead South Korea to closer uh, ties to China as a as a way forward. Would you like to start, or should I talk straight at the other end? How do you think about that? Well, since I'm located in the Far East, I think it's only proper that we proceed this way. The natural progression of people, goods, and ideas historically. So I'll wait. Okay. So, Joe, would you like to start? Uh, if Trump were to ask me to advise him on soft power, I'd be happy to do so, but I don't think he'd listen. So I've, there's not much danger. But, there, but it's an interesting question. I think Trump... Uh, and the quality of the campaign rhetoric that we saw uh, has already damaged American soft power. It's interesting that um, soft power is the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than coercion or payment. Um, if you look at the index of soft power produced by Portland, the London consultancy, which came out uh, earlier this year, uh, they rank the U.S. as number one and China as number 28. Um, I think I, I would not. I would think American soft power next year may be a little lower than that. I, this is I'm just guessing when they bring out the 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 index next year. And I was recently reading a book by Gideon Rockman, which is about to come out, called Easternization. And Rockman takes a different view than I do. Uh, my argument has been that China is not going to pass the U.S. Rockman says they will. And Rockman talks about how strong China is going to be and GDP and so forth. And then he comes to the issue of soft power and he admits that uh, it still matters. And he said, if you look at why is it that the U.S. is the world's reserve currency, the dollar, uh, and why is it that people still want to use U.S. legal systems and British legal systems, partly English language, but it's also because the U.S. has the reputation of being a stable democracy. If you see the renminbi as a, a reserve currency, uh, you have to be able to get your money out. And whether you get your money out depends on a capricious decision by a communist bureaucrat. You might rather hold dollars rather than hold renminbi. So the basis for a reserve currency status rests on democracy and a rule of law. And what you can say about China doesn't have democracy or rule of law. And so in that sense, what, what Rockman says in this book is the Chinese still haven't caught up on soft power, which is consistent with the Portland Index and so forth, but he's applying it to a real issue that affects uh, his prediction, which is that China's going to pass the U.S. And I think one of the things I would want to say to Trump, if he were to listen, which I don't think he would, is that it's not just your excessive rhetoric. It's behavior that might challenge whether people are attracted to the U.S. because of the rule of law and democracy. And if your behavior begins to challenge that or to lead to questions about that, you're not only undercutting American soft power, you're also indirectly a undercutting American hard power as well. And one would hope he would understand that, but I don't believe he's going to ask me. 
Um, on the question about the, whether the Trump uh, presidency means anything about, say, the financial crises, <clears throat> uh, I think it does raise new questions about uh, certainty and uh, predictability. And uh, if he says we are going to raise uh, the defense spending, you know, the question is how, who's going to manage the budget in such a way that, say, four years from now or eight years from now, uh, there's still plenty left uh, to spend uh, in the Treasury or that there won't be a financial meltdown from the markets who say, whoops, the American uh, budget is way too imbalanced and there's going to be question as to whether they can maintain the level of spending they can. So I think anything that increases the uncertainty uh, in the markets, uh, and when you have a president like that, uh, who who does that? <clears throat> I think that does create problems. The second is that for planning international agreements and progress on dealing with international financial issues, these are very complex processes that require a lot of specialists working together over a long period of time. And one of the sad things about TPP is that so much effort was put in by so many countries to try to make that work, and the fact that that didn't, uh, didn't come through. And uh, if you had a new administration that was able to repackage that and get it in some kind of acceptable form, that would be a great progress in, in managing trade issues. But I think the chances of a somewhat disorganized administration uh, that does not have a clear purpose, does not work well with professionals, the chance of being able to create the kind of international preparation uh, for meetings to advance uh, uh, certainty by dealing with uh, financial issues and international trade issues, I think it's very much called into questions. I think that's one of the reasons that many of us are sad and worried because, uh, uh, of course, we are professionals and like, like professionals. But I think the fact is that to, to work together with other countries, you need predictability, you need a broad range of planning. And without that, all those agreements are much more difficult. Um, I think I, I would just pick up on the point that Professor Ezra just made in terms of whether a new administration could come in and um, kind of get the TPP um, concluded. I think that's... A possibility, certainly, and um, other countries actually can actually help to facilitate this process by keeping the deal open. So the deal is, um, uh, it's before many of the um, governments um, for approval of the legislature. What can happen, in fact, um, is for them to, they could also possibly start a new deal with almost identical terms in the TPP. Um, call it something different, but remove the clause that requires um, ratification by at least six countries constituting 80% of uh, GDP, um, of the world's GDP, um, of the group's GDP, sorry. And um, by doing so, what they can do is to sign on to the agreement first and then have in that agreement a, a clause which allows other countries to join in. 
So in this way, the U.S. a separate later administration or even this administration at subsequent point can actually join in and by in this way keep the agreement open. Whether or not this can be done as a political matter, that's a different issue, because of course all these countries were willing to sacrifice um, some terms or some uh, benefits because they understood that they would be gaining to U.S. markets, and there were certain also security implications from that that they really wanted to sign up to. Um, but I think in the long run, this is perhaps what can best achieve the ultimate goal of having an agreement, a trade agreement that ties these various economies together and that um, protects against protectionism. Thanks. While I have this opportunity, may I just pose a very quick, simple question to Professor Nye? Is there a, another country, a country in the world that has less soft power than North Korea? Then <laughs> less Korea. soft power than North Korea. Uh, I think they rank at the bottom, though I'm, I haven't. Uh, the the index I referred to only goes down to thirty, and I suspect <laughs> I suspect like Transparency's international index, if it were to go down to about two hundred, North Korea would be somewhere down there. Well, economic power, of course, is a conventional fundamental index for measuring state power, in addition to political power, military power, soft power, the size of your territory, population. I'm a firm believer in economic power as an effective leverage in international relations, not to the extent that I believe that economic interdependence and more trade ameliorate international, all international tensions and prevent war and so forth. But when you think of China, and Chinese behavior since the 1997 East Asian financial crisis, 2008 was mentioned, or even in the wake of uh, the tsunami in Indonesia in December 2004, China has been quite giving, quite proactive. And uh, I think that has helped China's international stature, its prestige in the region. And if the Trump administration were to pivot away from Asia, but I don't think it will do that because about a year ago, Mr. Trump declared to the world in public that he knows South Korea because he has ordered 400 flat screen Samsung TVs from South Korea. He knows the importance, economic importance of the region. But if the Trump administration were to try to abandon Asia, that would certainly give great momentum to Chinese prestige and influence in the region. When you think of China-Korea relations, we often pontificate on the question of why. Why does China not do more to punish, to pressure North Korea when it holds such great economic leverage? Because China is quite satisfied with its tremendous economic political le leverage vis-a-vis -vis North Korea. Likewise, vis-a-vis -vis South Korea. Many South Koreans harbor the notion that uh, by virtue of the fact that South Korea-China trade surpasses uh, the combination of South Korea-US and South Korea-Japan trade means that South Korea remains beholden to China. We want to maintain good relations with China. All that is quite sensible, but I think that also favors Chinese interests in the region. The fact that China is able to dictate not only to North Korea, but quite often to the South as well on South Korea's security policy, uh, this bodes ill for uh, Korean interests in the future if the U.S. were to shy away from the Asia region. Well, one more thing quickly, if I may. Now that the Pakune scandal is out there and there are daily revelations of uh, plain weird uh, details of Park Geun-hye's 
special relationship with this scandalous character, Choi Soon-shil. South Korea's very abrupt and seemingly irrational uh, policy changes over the past three years are becoming more and more understandable. For example, why did South Korea hedge for three years on the deployment of a sophisticated U.S. missile defense system, THAAD, and then all of a sudden declare that it would, as it did earlier this year? Why did Park Geun-hye attend uh, the 70th anniversary of the Chinese purported victory over Japan, uh, the military parade last September? when Park Geun-hye was among the world's dictators, the only leader from the free world to be present, and then sort of turned her back on China early this year. Why did South Korea hedge for three to four years on joining the TPP? Because South Korea wanted to maintain good relations with China. Why did South Korea all of a sudden close the Kaesong Industrial Complex earlier this year, the only uh, symbolic and real inter-Korean cooperation, inter-Korean project. Well, it seems that such whimsical policy changes to some extent have been affected by Park Geun-hye's reliance on advice from this shady character. I'm, I'm going to say a few words about how I think China perceives the Korean issue. Um, they have been very disappointed with uh, our man with uh, low soft power in North Korea. And uh, they have made no secret of the fact that they've been very dissatisfied with him. And that their main interest is in, uh, in relation to the Korean Peninsula with South Korea. And <clears throat> uh, China uh, considers that Korea is a neighbor that's going to stay. And they want to have uh, continuing leverage over the Korean uh, Peninsula. And it's uh, better from their point of view if the United States does not have direct talks with uh, North Korea, which they can manage. And uh, I think in the early part of Park uh, uh presidency, she, they did extremely well by getting uh, her to attend that celebration in Beijing. And I think it really had to do with North Korea uh, and making advances in the nuclear weapon uh, development uh, that scared uh, South Korea and feeling that they had to have that do something uh, to defend against that, and that's when the U.S. THAAD missiles came in, which uh, strengthened South Korea's relationship with Japan and with the United States. And uh, I think that uh, we can anticipate that the uh, Chinese will continue to try to uh, develop close relations with South, South Korea. And I think one of the reasons they want to put more pressure on North Korea not to develop the nuclear weapons is so that they can keep good relations with South Korea, Japan, and with the United States. So I think uh, we have to consider that uh, China will be a very active player uh, in the Korean Peninsula. Remember, they went to war in the Korean Peninsula and lost nearly a, a million people uh, as a uh, result of that. We're almost at the ten, uh, end of our time, so I'll uh, call on two more people. And if you would keep your question quite brief, uh, yes. You in the blue shirt, yes. Okay, what would, uh, what, what would it look like when uh, President-elect Trump gave the speech at the UN about human rights, about gender equality or something like that? Thank you. 
<laughs> Final question. Yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, although it's not very clear that uh, Trump will really, you know, uh, have what he said in, in his campaign, but it seems that that uh, Trump government may have uh, its policies more isolated to the rest of the world. And uh, so, if that happened, what kind of impact will on uh, the United States global leadership? That's one question. That Another yeah. very no, short. No, no, no. Two okay. questions. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. Do you want to? Okay. Well, if Trump were indeed to isolate the U.S. or to turn inward, uh, it would have a, a a very strong effect on U.S. leadership, um, and that's why we've been puzzled about what he really intends to do. It's very hard to find from just looking at his statements in the campaign or uh, uh, from the appointments that he's made thus far, and we're missing a key appointment, the Secretary of State. It's very hard to give you a firm prediction for it. But if I had to make a guess, I would guess that you've heard a lot more barking than biting. In other words, I don't see that the, I would not predict the Americans turning inward over the next four years. Uh, if you look at the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations poll that was uh, put, came out around September, showed majority of the American people did not want to turn inward. And uh, it also showed that a majority of the American people were accepting of immigration. So the fact that Trump won the presidency by 100,000 votes in three Midwest states, which had Rust Belt problems, and lost the popular vote by 2.5 million votes, we shouldn't overinterpret this election to a massive inward-turning wave of public opinion in the United States. What the Chicago poll shows is just the opposite. As a clever and skillful politician, which he is, I would think he'll pay attention to what public opinion is. And it's not 100,000 votes in three Rust Belt states. That got in the Electoral College. It's not necessarily going to give him the support he needs overall for foreign policy. I think just as the countries in East Asia uh, will try to look uh, both uh, to China and to the United States, so I think um, the United States will also not only look inward, but look outward. I speak as a Midwesterner who spent the first uh, 20 years of life in the Midwest. Uh, and I think a lot of my friends who voted for Trump, uh, they're not going to separate from the world either. They're going to go abroad. They're going to have trade. Uh, my, the Ohio farmers uh, listen to international reports on weather in China uh, because it affects what they're going to be able to sell next year. And uh, those are uh, among the people who voted for Trump. So I think because we are a very diverse uh, country, very democratic with a lot of initiatives, uh, that uh, Trump is not going to stop us uh, from keeping up with the world. Thank you. Um, I, I, I too don't expect uh, Trump to be uh, turning inwards. I think he might well have a more limited understanding of what uh, will help support American national interest. I think that's certainly the case. But I think very soon he will learn that um, 
hopefully before the, the, um, the lessons are too expensive, I think very soon he will learn that it will be impossible for him to achieve his goal of putting America first if America turns inwards, either in the economic or in the security realm. Um, and I think it, once he finds that out, I hope, hopefully he will be pragmatic enough, as, as he has shown himself to be, to, um, to, to undertake corrective actions, and hopefully at that point of time it will not be too late for America. Five years ago, when Kim Jong-un took over in the wake of his father's death, December 17th, very few people would have foreseen that regime change in Korea would come first to the South, not the North. Uh, I think in a perfect world, in our academic world, in other words, uh, there are lessons to be drawn from what's going on in the Korean Peninsula, that public opinion is the fundamental, really the essence of any government, as David Hume said many years ago. Uh, it is on public opinion only that regimes are founded from the most military and despotic to the most free and liberal. And taking that, applying that lesson to Mr. Trump, I think or I hope that Trump will come to understand that public opinion is all that he has and that he will pursue a sensible policy toward Asia for the next four years, perhaps muddling through, but not doing anything drastically irrational. Well, on that note, uh, I'm, I suspect that we have not made you've, anyone in this audience feel decidedly better, <laughs> but I hope so much that we haven't made you feel decidedly worse. <laughs> and I really thank you so much, and I want to thank Andrew Gordon for convening this. This was the idea of James Evans, who's standing there in the back of the Harvard Yenching Institute. Uh, thank you all for coming today.